Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Here we have the final episode of our Song of Songs series. And in this episode, Peter Lightheart and Alistair Roberts are going to discuss Song of Songs chapters 7 and 8. We really hope that you enjoy listening in on this conversation over these chapters. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here with Alistair Roberts, sitting across from me at my dining room kitchen table. And we're coming to the ninth and final episode of the podcast in which we are discussing the Song of Songs. So we'll be discussing the last two chapters of the Song of Songs, chapters 7 and 8. Brian Motes is joining us here to control the audio and to make sure that we get captured and recorded as uh, for your consumption out there in podcast land. I'd just plunge into some comments on the opening verses of chapter 7. Uh, one of the things that we noted in the last episode and the end of chapter 6 is the glorification and elevation of the bride. That's one of the arcs of the whole poem. Uh, the bride is despised and abused at the beginning of the poem by the, by the time you get to the end of chapter 6. She's been elevated. She is uh, uh, the most beautiful, the most perfect in the estimation of queens and concubines. It's not just the lover that sees her quality and her beauty, but uh, others do as well. And she's also grown into this kind of cosmic figure. Her beauty is like the beauty of a full moon as pure as the sun. Um, and she's called the Shulamite there at the end of chapter 6 uh, for the first time, the first and only time in the poem that she's given that title, which is a feminine form of Solomon. So that's, that's uh, kind of a completion of one of the arcs of the poem. The other arc of the poem, or another arc of the poem, uh, can be seen in the, when we compare the two wasifs. A wasif, spelled W-A-S-F, a wasif is a, an ancient uh, poetic style in which a lover, it's a form of romantic poetry, in which a lover will celebrate the beauty of his beloved uh, feature by feature. And that's what we have in chapters 4 and 7 of the Song of Songs, where the lover, the man, Dodi, is uh, speaking of the beauty of his bride. We have a wasif of the, of the bridegroom at the end of chapter 5. But if you compare the two, uh, the two wasifs of the bride in chapters 4 and 7, we see, you can see that there's a movement there. Uh, and the movement is a glorification of the bride in part, but also a, uh, an increasing intimacy between the bridegroom and the bride. She's veiled in the first wasif. Uh, she's uh, glancing from behind her veil, but there's no veil mentioned in chapter 7. The wasif in chapter 7 focuses in the first half of the poem on features of the bride uh, below her waist, to put it somewhat crudely. Her feet, the curves of her hips, her navel, her belly, her breasts. And then it moves up to her face, her neck and her face, and the rest of the poem is, is describing the beauty of her neck and her face. But this is, the veil is removed, the bridegroom has come into intimate contact with his bride, and uh, she seems to be uh, uh, mostly unclothed, maybe completely unclothed, and he can uh, see and delight in her, uh, in her, in her entire body. So part of the Part of the movement of the poem is this movement of intimacy, increasing intimacy, but that's a, it's kind of a jagged movement because we've had moments where the two lovers are together, then they're separated, they're together again, then they're separated again, 
and now toward the end of the poem, they seem to be in, a, in an intimacy uh, unlike anything we've seen previously in the poem. There's a movement up the body, as you describe, which is um, depicted in verse 8 as a climbing of the palm tree. Um, there's an ascension movement here that I think is an important part of what's taking place. Um, moving up the body, but also moving up in other senses, moving up into intimacy, into presence, and as we allegorize it, it's connected to our movement up into God's presence as well, into that communion. And it links with the, that, that point links with the temple imagery that we talked about in our previous episode. Um, you mentioned the palm tree, verse 7, your stature is like a palm tree, your breasts are like its clusters. I will climb the palm tree, I will take hold of its fruit stalks. I think that's connected with the, with the uh, temple because the temple is, it's, it's lined, its interior is lined with cedar wood, but the, the cedar wood is carved with various kinds of fruit and vegetables and palm trees. So an, a movement from the exterior of the temple through the, through the nave of the temple into the debir, the inner sanctuary, would be like a climbing up of uh, a palm tree in order to get the fruits. So, and that, that's also, you could say, a sacrificial movement. Sacrifices are performed out at the altar. The smoke literally goes up to heaven, but symbolically is moving also in toward the Lord's presence in the most holy place. And the smoke of the animal, the smoke of the offering is being uh, taken up the palm tree, as it were. Uh, one of the interesting twists on that imagery, we think of the when, the when an offering is made or when a priest goes into the holy place, it's the, it's the bride. He represents the bride going in to commune with the husband. But this is about the husband climbing the palm tree in order to commune with the bride. So you have the, the bride and the bridegroom somewhat inverted and it's the bridegroom who's seeking the delight of his bride. And uh, again, the glorification of the bride is part of the image that the bridegroom now sees the bride as having the stature of a tree and having fruit that he can delight in. And again, the, the allegorical uh, implications of that are quite striking. The, the, uh, the Lord himself seeks the fruit that we produce to delight in them and sees us as a beautiful tree that he ascends in order to delight in our, the fruit that we produce. There's also this theme of wine that runs throughout this particular section, which connects um, this intimacy with the consumption of wine. Your navel is like a round goblet, which never lacks mixed wine. And then at the end, and your mouth like the best wine, your breasts like clusters of the vine. That movement into intimacy is also a movement into the rest of the drinking of wine. When we get to something like Genesis chapter 2, the parallel that we see with the days of creation in the first creation account, I think there's this movement through all the six days, and then the final day is the bringing together of the bridegroom and the bride, Adam and Eve, and that's paralleled with God's Sabbath rest. And I think this is something we're seeing similarly here, that this movement towards the drinking of wine is eschatological rest of the couple. Rest and enthronement, kingship uh, that are involved in that Sabbath, Sabbath idea. And again, we have something of inversion in the course of the poem. When wine is first mentioned, it's the bride longing for the wine of the bridegroom. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for his love is better than wine. But here in 7-9, the bridegroom is longing for the wine that his 
bride provides. Uh, uh, and uh, chapter 8, verse 2, I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother who used to, uh, who used to instruct me. I would give you spice wine to drink for the juice of my pomegranate. So she's offering wine to him when she was longing for wine at the beginning. He had the house of wine previously, but now she describes her mother's house as a place where there's wine. And so the king, in a sense, it's a, it's a glorification of the bride, but the glorification of the bride is also the glorification of the bridegroom. And the bridegroom is, in a sense, entering more fully, completely into his Sabbath kingship because the bride is with him. Uh, that's another tie-in with the, the book of Revelation that we've mentioned a few times. Uh, the book of Revelation begins with Jesus enthroned and glorified, uh, but Jesus is more fully, comes into his kingdom when the bride joins him, uh, when he has a queen at his right hand. So that's the, that's the movement of the song as well. The, the presence of the bride is what uh, enables, the, the, uh, enables the bridegroom to enter into his Sabbath, uh, Sabbath enthronement. I like the way C.S. Lewis talks about um, the relationship of Eros and talks about the participation of the couple within this um, deeper relationship. He talks about, by nudity, the couples, the lover ceases to be solely jo John and Mary. The universal he and she are emphasized. You could almost say they put on nakedness as a ceremonial robe or as the costume for a charade. For we must still beware, and never more than when we thus partake of the pagan sacrament in our love passages, of being serious in the wrong way. The Sky Father himself is only a pagan dream of one far greater than Zeus, and far more masculine than the male. And a mortal man is not even the Sky Father, and cannot really wear his crown, only a copy of it, done in tinsel paper. I do not call it this in contempt. I like ritual. I like private theatricals. I even like charades. Paper crowns have their legitimate and in the proper context their serious uses. They are not in the last resort more, much flimsier, if imagination mend them, than all earthly dignity, dignities. And he relates this to the relationship between Christ and the church. And I think it's helpful to see that something like this, which is pointing towards the allegorical truth at the heart, is something that's also reflected in every single couple that in their relationship, they are partaking of something of a charade of this deeper reality. It's never fully connected to it in that full seriousness, but it talks about it compar comparing to bottom acting things out yeah, yeah. in a way that's both ridiculous but also glorious. Yeah. That winds us back to something uh, I discussed in the opening episodes about the Song of Songs as wisdom literature. Wisdom literature is literature of instruction for a king. And part of the wisdom that's ex encouraged in Proverbs uh, developed in a different way in Ecclesiastes and come to its climax here in the Song of Songs is the wisdom of choosing the, the bride. The crown is the bride, as we suggested in uh, chapter 3 of the Song of Songs. I like the image of the paper crown. It makes me think uh, the, ortho the Orthodox <laughs> need to modify their liturgy a little bit, you know. What do they use? Uh, wreaths? Maybe that maybe that's good enough. You know, a golden crown would be yep. a little much. Then, then he talks very helpfully, I think, of the danger of collapsing that deeper reality. Yeah, you're blurring the distinction between the bridegroom and a particular bridegroom. But uh, a wreath, I think, would do it if that's what they use. But a gold crown, probably not. Um, I wanted to go back to the wasif at the beginning and, and just highlight a couple of things. We talked about the wine. 
her navel is like a round goblet which never lacks mixed wine. Her belly is like a heap of wheat. Uh, there's bread and wine imagery, which is again, you've got this, uh, in the Song of Songs, you always have this interesting twist imagery that we would think is mostly associated with the bridegroom. He's the, he is the bread and the wine who delights the bride, is attached to the bride, and she's the food for the bridegroom. So Eucharistically, you could say that there's a, a mutual consumption that's being implied by uh, the song. A couple of things that uh, lead into a more general comment. Uh, uh, there's, there's several description of the bride's eyes in the course of the poem. The eyes seem to be veiled and eventually uncovered. So that's part of the growing intimacy of the poem. But you also you move from the uh, image of the eyes as doves, which uh, I, think, I think we might have touched on this, but I, I don't know that we developed it at any length. Um, I, I think the, the imagery might be of color or of shape, but I think the fundamental idea is that the doves are messengers. What she's doing with her eyes is uh, sending a message to her lover. And what he delights in are the messages that are sent, which suggests the kind of, the, the eyes are not just, as we think of them as passive receptors of light that comes from the outside world, but there's something uh, active in looking. There's something active in uh, lovers viewing each other face to face. That's not just passively receiving one another, but that's an, there's an active, you can make a statement with a glance. We all know that, but we tend to forget that because we uh, flatten out sight so that it's merely receptive. Just as a footnote, Rupert Sheldrake has a neat little book called uh, uh, the sense of being stared at, and he describes experiments that he uses, uh, that he's tried uh, to uh, make the case, he actually tries to make a case that uh, sight is actually not simply a receptive, uh, scientifically speaking, is not merely receptive, but actually has an active, it's kind of a radiance that goes out from the eyes that's, uh, that's real, and he tries to make a scientific case for that. This is a different, little different image, your eyes are like Kuhls and Heshman, which might suggest, again, color, might suggest glittering transparency, beauty, uh, visual beauty, but these are pools by the gate of Bath uh, Rabim, which um, gate imagery, eyes by the gate, suggests a kind of guardian. Uh, the eyes are not simply, it's not, the eyes are not simply being commended for their visual beauty, but her eyes are being commended as maybe, maybe guardians of her body. Her eyes are, I want to say barriers, but her eyes are, are guardians, I guess, guardians of the gates of her body. Some ancient commentators see a baptismal image in that, so, and I think there might be something to that. The other, th the other thing I want to point, point out was the uh, verse 8. This is another example of the sense, senses being um, turned outward rather than simply receptive. Uh, the end of verse 8, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your nose like apples. You could say the fragrance in your nose, you know, receiving the fragrance, but it seems that the Fragrance is somehow being turned outward as well as vision. So there's, a di there's an interesting portrayal of sense experience that, that comes out of the song. Our experience of the body, again, I think is something that we see um, being challenged here. The way that we can often see the body merely as a source of sense information, that we can depersonalize the body. But yet within this relationship of love, the eyes the gaze actually sends out messages or the caress is something that summons the self into the body, that the body is a site of personal presence and 
the body being described here is not just mere physical appearance. It is the body of this particular person which is delighted in. It's very hard, I think, for us in our culture where we increasingly depersonalize the body, atomize the body, treat the body just as a sum of its parts and compare different parts for different persons as if they could be abstracted from the whole to understand this way of looking at the body. But yet this is a way of understanding the body that is far more deeply personal and Christian than the ways that we're accustomed to. Yeah, and, and the body, um, with, with the senses that the body experiences or maybe somehow the senses are actively engaging the world. That's a, that's a, that's a mode of presence in the world, a mode of presence to one another. God himself makes himself present in body, in the body of his son, the threefold body of his son, in the incarnation, in the Eucharist, in the body of the church. So God comes to us in this, this kind of embodied form that makes him present to us. So, and that, yeah, again, shifts from the body being a mere certainly not a mere lump of matter and not merely receptive of, of the world, but engaged in the world, embedded in the world, and active in the world. That take on the body and the uh, suggestions I made about the senses kind of go together here. We have a sense of the significance of someone's countenance, looking in their eyes, um, their mouth as a sight of the self coming out. Mm -hmm. And what we see here, I think, is the extension of the countenance of the self to include the whole body. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, you asked a, a, a couple episodes ago uh, what I made of the mothers in the poem. And I didn't have, I had a really lame response, something like, I don't know, uh, which is about as lame as you can get. But coming to, here to the end, I, I did have a thought. Uh, you have the interesting, I'm, I'm looking at the beginning of chapter eight. You have this interesting shift, first of all, to from from breasts in chapter seven that are they're described erotically the the lover is ascending the palm tree in order to she said may your breast he says may your breasts be like clusters of the vine he's going ascending the palm tree to get fruit and the breasts are associated with that fruit there's an there's an erotic delight that he's taking in the body of the of his beloved but then eight one oh that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts uh, and then when the the bridegroom is finally awakened. The bridegroom is taken into the mother's, back to the mother's house. So beneath the apple tree, I awakened you. This is verse five. There your mother was in labor with you. There she was in labor and gave you birth. So he's, she, she, he's not taken back to the mother's house, but the place where he's awakened is the same place where his mother gave birth. So the mother's, uh, I'd have to go back and look at the other passages that talk about this, but at least here, motherhood is associated with uh, rebirth the rebirth of love. Love is a kind of rebirth that's being compared to the original birth. When the lover awakens, it's like it's in the same place and it's like a coming back to life. Which puts us back, I think, among other things, it puts us back in the garden with Adam and Eve, Genesis 2. And uh, I wonder if it'd be possible to read the entire poem as Adam's dreams between his deep sleep, during his deep sleep, before he awakens to find Eve. <laughs> and then he finds Eve, and they have this declaration at the end. I wonder if you could make that reading work, but you do, you, at least you have the, the awakening of a lover in verse 5 that's like a, that is like a birth. The desire that the um, bridegroom would be like a brother to her, again, that gets back to the original theme of one flesh union as kinship, right. that the fundamental 
union that characterizes our lives is the one flesh bond that we share with our mothers and out of which all our family bonds arise. And so that return to the world, the body of the mother, that event of rebirth is a bringing together of that one flesh union and the one flesh union of the bridegroom and the the bride. And I think that might help us to understand why the mothers are so significant. Yeah, yeah. yeah and it's, this is not the only place where you have the kin, this kind of kin relationship. Uh, the climax of the poem, right in the middle of the poem in chapters four and into the beginning of chapter five, she becomes my sister, my bride. Uh, so there's the declaration of kinship uh, as well as the, uh, the marital erotic relationship. And I think, go back to the comments uh, we made at the time we talked about those passages. That combination is essential to a truly human, truly human eros, truly human sexuality. I think one way to, one way to state the perversity of uh, pornography or the perversity of casual sex is that you have, you're acting as bride and bridegroom without acting as brother and sister. There's no brother-sister relationship there. There's no recognition of kinship, even human kinship, kinship in a sense, treated as object rather than a fellow human being. So uh, detaching those two elements of the relationship is, is disastrous. We've talked about the return to birth, this event of rebirth, also the one flesh union that is involved. But there's also a return to childhood and the playfulness and the joy and the openness of childhood, that the child is profoundly open to the world in a way that the adult often is not. The adult can be cynical and dulled and does not have that playful delight in the creation and other realities around them. But the relationship between the lovers is characterized not just by a um, this sense of a duty to have children, for instance, but a delight and a joy in the other person's body um, in a way that does have a childlike, playful character to it. You're back to those paper crowns again, aren't you? Yeah. yeah when, I, uh, when I was a full, not a full-time, when I was a pastor, I did a, a good bit of premarital counseling. Being a pastor uh, in, a, in connection with a college, you know, these young people match up pretty quickly. I did a lot of premarital counseling, and one of my uh, exhortations was uh, from the Song of Songs to, uh, I was tried to qualify this because the, the phrase has been misused, but sexual experimentation, sexual playfulness is part of the picture here. And that's not something, uh, that, that, requires, that requires all kinds of trust. It requires, it requires a, the, the brother-sister relationship. There has to be uh, intimacy on a, on a human level. But within that context, then a, there is a kind of playfulness to the, to the eroticism that's in the poem. I found that interesting, thinking about our culture's relationship to these things as, again. There's a, a need where we do not have that proper openness to each other to have not just physical prophylactics, but emotional ones mm -hmm. as well, mm -hmm. where we close ourselves off to other people, almost treating it more less as play and more sport, mm -hmm. which has to be mastered through mm -hmm. technique. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good contrast. Uh, I want to, want to bring up something also from the opening verses of chapter 8, uh, so, a comment that uh, Robert, Alt, uh, not Alter, Robert uh, Jensen makes in his little commentary on the song. Uh, he points out that in a couple of ways here, at the beginning, the, the uh, bride, the beloved, expresses her 
desire for public recognition of their love. If I found you outdoors, I would kiss you. No, no one would despise me either. She wants to lead him into the house of uh, the mother who used to instruct me. Um, and uh, Jensen's comment is that however private the act of sexual union may indeed be, its existence and character is, a vi is vital public information. And uh, then goes on, uh, where sexual union is conceived of as private and so legally unregulated and just so legally powerless, community can be held together only by arbitrary fiat, and if it comes to that, by force. Sexual liberation and political tyranny are but two sides of the same coin. So there's, a, you know, th there's this interesting dynamic of public and private that's reflected in the Bible in general, but also in this poem. You have private, private sexual acts that require public recognition, and that that's, gives, a, gives this erotic basis to social relation to society as a whole. And when that's lacking, when you invert that, and you, you put uh, sexual activity out in public, what should be intimate and, and, uh, and uh, secret out in public, as we do, uh, and then refuse to have any kind of formal public recognition of relationships. I mean, people enter into one flesh relationships over and over again with different people all the time. So when you have no public recognition of a relationship, so you invert the, the dynamics of public and private, and then you don't have any erotic foundation for society. And then uh, Jensen's suggesting that what happens is that it's society is held together purely by force. That helps to give, maybe helps to uh, give some buttressing to the Christian, uh, uh, Christian uh, interest in maybe obsession about sexual ethics, which is often dismissed, you know, by secularists. They're just, people just doing, uh, just having pleasure in private. Why, why should you be concerned about that? You're a Puritan who can't sleep because somebody else is having fun. But uh, Jensen, I think, rightly points out that this has profound political implications. It has implications for what we do in private and how we treat private activity. It has profound implications for the public. Verse 6 is perhaps one of the most significant, if not the most significant verse in the whole song. And familiar with, I think, many readers of the song, this is the verse that they know the best. Yeah. Why do you think he return, He moves to the imagery of death and Sheol immediately after the imagery of um, birth? A very good question. My mind immediately goes to kind of an allegorical way of answering that question. Uh, you have the rebirth of the lover or the birth of the lover that is pictured as a rebirth. Uh, that's, a, that's a resurrection image. And the love that's being described here is the love of Yah, as uh, the end of verse 6 says. And that's the love that's as strong as death. Uh, that's the love that overcomes Sheol. That's the love that leads Israel through the waters of Exodus and uh, through, any, through any other dangers. And it's the love that raises Jesus from the dead. Did you have a thought from more imminently within the text of why the transition is made? Yeah, one of the, one of the interesting uh, points about that expression, put me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. Who's speaking here? It's the bride, and she is putting a seal over the heart of her beloved and on his arm. A seal is a mark of, it's a claim. We're sealed in baptism. God claims us. He puts his name on us, so we belong to him. But this is, again, turned the other direction, and it's a bride putting her seal on the bridegroom so that his heart and his arm belong to her. Jensen makes this point and goes all Bardian, talking about the Lord by his own 
self-determination in election. He is the God of Israel and the God of the church. And uh, he is determined to be that God and to use his strong arm and to devote his heart to that people. Uh, that, that doesn't mean that God is uh, dependent on Israel. It's a free commitment that he makes. But having made that free commitment, uh, he doesn't want to be God without being the God of Israel. And maybe when we're thinking about this, it might help to reflect upon the movement that's described in Genesis 2 and elsewhere in marriage, that a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife. There is this death and if that death cannot truly occur, if a man isn't prepared to die to what has gone before, there can be no new, no true new life. And so that seal of that seal of love that is associated with death and the grave is the very tomb in which the old life is lain, so that a new life can begin. And if that death does not occur, if love is not as strong as the grave, mm -hmm. then we have this futile attempt to start something new and nothing ever happens um, in a way that breaks with the past. Right. And, and I think the, the implication of verse 6 is that that love that can overcome that death and live again has to be the love of Yah. It has to be the flame of Yah. In, you know, in human, purely human love, if such, if such a thing is possible, purely human love is not strong enough to overcome that death. But I think that the image of love as a flame, a common one in love poetry forever, Johnny Cash, Solomon, uh, sharing the same wisdom. <laughs> um, I think it, there's a number of things that are uh, uh, rolled up there. The, I think it's, a, it's an apt description, as uh, I think Johnny Cash means it, it's an apt description of the experience of being in love, the experience of erotic passion. Uh, but it's also tied in with the, the uh, sacrificial themes we've looked at in the course of the poem. The, uh, the lovers are joined together in one by their common participation in this, by their common consumption by, in the, as it were, the flame of love. There's a kind of a sacrificial theme there. Love is, or fire rather, is in the Bible, is, can be destructive. You have fires that you know, fall from heaven and destroy Sodom. But frequently, fires are uh, transfiguring. And I think that that's part of the imagery. We, we've talked before about uh, Jim Jordan's comments on Adam in the garden. Starts out as Adam, made from the earth, becomes Ish, the man of, uh, the man of fire. Uh, there's a pun on the word Ish, man, and the word for fire, Ish. Uh, so he's transfigured in the presence of the woman. Uh, and the love, the love of Yah, which inflames him for, with love for the woman, makes him a different person, uh, changes him from an earthbound figure to, a, to a, uh, a, an image of the flame of Yah himself. A couple of the quick comments before we close. Uh, one is there's, uh, at the end of, uh, toward the end of chapter 7, uh, we didn't comment on this, but verse 10 is one of several declarations of mutual possession that are found in the poem. In this case, it's, I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Elsewhere it was, I am his and he is mine, this uh, declaration of mutual possession. But here the, the word desire is introduced, uh, which is the same, same word for desire in Genesis 3. I'm sure you have uh, worked out opinions about what is going on in Genesis 3 and the curse your desire will be for your husband. Uh, but whatever, whatever it is, uh, 
if it's a negative thing in Genesis 3, then this is being redeemed here uh, because the uh, lover's desire is being directed toward the beloved. And what the song is depicting is a, is a uh, kind of restoration of original Edenic union and one fleshness, uh, overcoming the curse of, uh, of uh, Genesis 3. But it, what, it, what have you figured out with the, with the Genesis 3 passage about the desire for the husband? When we connect it to its larger context, there is a very closely parallel verse in chapter 4 um, concerning sin's desire for Cain. Um, I see it primarily as the woman's desire to have her husband, to have his heart. And that is fundamentally not a bad thing. It's an appropriate thing. But yet that desire was something that was involved in the whole dynamics of the fall, that Adam just meekly followed his wife's voice and her influence and power over him, the fact that she had him, was one of the reasons why he fell. And that desire for the woman to have her husband is a good thing if she's a wise woman and that she should have her husband's heart. But yet that struggle occurs as there is this tension placed in that. And I think God has placed at various points in these relationships buffers to prevent, as it were, this sin from spreading. So there's enmity placed between the woman and the serpent, which prevents the woman from just following after the serpent as she did in the past. There's tension placed between the man and the woman so that the man does not just follow after the woman. And that, I think, is something that's being redeemed here, that the woman, as a good woman, now has her husband's heart and he follows after her. Mm -hmm. uh, the last thing I wanted to point out about the song is the open-endedness of the ending. We've noted the, the pattern of uh, approach and distance, uh, presence and absence that's uh, run through the whole poem. And we might like all neatly tied up at the end, bride and bridegroom together in an enclosed space living happily ever after. But it seems that there, at the end, uh, there's still, there's still a, some sort of absence. Dodi is still needs to come to, the, to his beloved. Hurry, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or like a young stag on the mountains of spices. So there's this open-ended desire uh, for the coming of the beloved, which um, uh, Jewish commentators have, I think, rightly taken as a kind of messianic desire. Uh, and Christians have read it in those allegorical terms too. And again, we can link it up with Revelation, which ends with the bride inspired by the Spirit calling for Jesus to come. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. So there's the, the poem has this, this open-endedness. Uh, there's been a consummation, but there's still a further consummation to come. Um, think back to comments that we've discussed in earlier episodes from Paul Griffith, where he talks about the wound of love that's inherent in any love any relationship uh, under the sun, there's always this, the satisfaction is always tinged by the, uh, the recognition or the desire for further satisfaction and for a kind of satisfaction that is not provided here. And, that, and he sees that as kind of a, uh, a built-in, not, not just, a, not just, a, not just a, uh, uh, an effect of sin, part of what uh, Griffith calls the desolation. It's not part of the desolation. It's part of human love, that it's not, uh, that it's pre-eschatological and it's a pointer to, even in its satisfactions, it's a pointer to a greater satisfaction to come. And there's a, this desire for uh, the full satisfaction 
uh, when the bridegroom arrives. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.